When it comes to the reality of marriage, one of the more troubling passages that you find in the gospel is found in the gospel of Luke chapter 20, where the Lord basically says that there is no marriage in heaven. And so specifically in this passage, what he says is that the children of this age marry and are given in marriage, whereas those who are worthy of the resurrection neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, obviously, for a lot of people, when they hear this particular passage, they're kind of bothered on some level because they're thinking to themselves some variation of like, look, when I get to the pearly gates, when I get to the, the kingdom of heaven, will I still know my spouse? Will my spouse still know me? Will my children know me? And, and so on and so forth, right? And so I, I want to kind of spend some time now unpacking this particular passage to show what it means to say that there's no marriage in heaven. So I guess when it comes to this notion of there being no marriage in heaven, the first thing that kind of comes to mind is that a symbol is never greater than a reality. And so to use a really easy example, think about a flag representing a country. And so obviously you think about the symbol of a flag, even though the flag might be beautiful and, and striking, it can't be greater than the reality of the country it's meant to symbolize or convey. Now, as this particular principle applies to the sacrament of marriage, the whole idea is that marriage, not like all the other sacraments, is a visible sign or a symbol which points to an invisible reality. And so, for example, the sacrament of baptism points to the spiritual reality of rebirth in Christ, right? When it comes to the Holy Eucharist, obviously it points to the sacramental reality of the crucified Christ. And when it comes to the sacrament of marriage, what does marriage point to? It points to, funny enough, the spousal love between Christ and his church. Now, obviously, when it comes to the sacraments, whenever we use the language of symbol or symbolism, we need to kind of qualify this somewhat, right? Because we're not using that term symbol in the classical or conventional sense. And so when it comes to the sacraments, they don't simply symbolize this invisible reality. They actually signify what they convey. And so to use a really easy example, when it comes to the Holy Eucharist, the Holy Eucharist is not simply a symbol of the crucified Christ, but rather it actually conveys the sacramental reality of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ the Lord. In any case, the point still remains that a symbol, by its very nature, can't be greater than the reality it's meant to actually signify or symbolize. Now, as this particular principle applies specifically to the sacrament of marriage, there's sort of two things to keep in mind here. And so the first thing to keep in mind is that as amazing and incredible as marriage obviously is on this side of heaven, right? So think about the goods of companionship and children and the marital act. Obviously, on the other side of heaven, the invisible reality to which the sacrament points has to be so much better. Mindful of the fact that as we hear in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor is the human heart even conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But you see, the second point is basically this. If it's true that the vocation of marriage is meant to point to the spousal love between Christ and his church, well then therefore the, the living out of that particular vocation must be focused on giving rather than receiving. Mindful of the fact that the love between the spouses is meant to be emblematic of the love between Christ and his church, and on top of that it's meant to inspire, transform, and ultimately change the world. To further illustrate this point, I want to share with you some thoughts from the writings of John Eldridge, where he talks about the proper development of young boys into men. And so the way that John Eldridge frames the issue, he basically says that in order for young men to become you know, fully functioning men, they need to kind of pass through different stages. And so he names these stages as boyhood, cowboy, warrior, lover, king, and sage. And so just to kind of run through these different stages one at a time. 
First of all, to consider the stage of boyhood, right? And so in the words of John Eldridge, the whole point of boyhood is to learn to discover that my father delights in me. My father delights in me in an unconditional sort of way. When it comes to the stage of cowboy, the whole focus here is competence. So a young boy or a young man learns that if he applies his gifts and talents and energy and, and time and attention to issues involving the world, he can achieve things. He has competence, right? And so I learn at the stage that basically I've got what it takes. The stage of a king is meant to convey this notion that I'm called to exercise leadership in the context of the world, to order this world according to God's salvific designs. And then finally, when it comes to the moment of being a sage, this is the moment I learned to become a teacher. This is when I learned to teach other young men how to become, for example, cowboys, warriors, and kings. But again, somewhere in the middle of that long kind of progression of personal development, somewhere around the stages of warrior and king, the young man learns to become a lover. Now, generally speaking, this is the stage where the young man learns to be awakened by the reality of beauty, right? So shades of Hansar von Balthasar, right? So beauty is meant to, to send me forth on mission, where I'm named and claimed and, and sent forth on mission, right? But specifically speaking for most men, this plays out in the context of the vocation of marriage, right? Where I learn to be awakened by the beauty of a young woman. You see, at this point, John Elders makes a really interesting comment when he basically says that for a lot of young men, as they kind of progress through these different stages of, again, cowboy, warrior, king, and, and so on and so forth, they kind of don't receive the gift they're meant to receive in these particular stages, or they don't change in the way that they're meant to change. And so therefore, when they reach the stage of a lover, they don't actually love in the way that they're called to love. And so, for example, just to kind of think it through, if a young man hasn't learned that he's unconditionally loved by his father, or he hasn't learned to develop a confidence in the context of the world, or he hasn't learned to make a gift of himself to something greater than himself, then when he comes to the lover stage, he can't properly love the woman in the way that he's called to love. And so, for example, when he gets to the stage of being a lover, maybe he looks at this woman that he loves as the one who is meant to give him a sense of validation and meaning and purpose, which, if you think about it, immediately sets the relationship on the wrong foot. Because again, to go back to our original point, if the vocation of marriage is meant to be emblematic of the spousal love between Christ and his church, well then therefore the way I'm called to conduct myself in the context of that vocation is really focused on giving as opposed to receiving, making a gift of myself to the other as opposed to taking something from that person to make myself feel better. Because the reality is that even though you might have a legitimate need and desire, again, for purpose and validation and meaning, the fact of the matter is that your husband or wife was never meant to fill that void which Christ alone was meant to fill. Okay, one final example, and I'll kind of end with this. And so recently I was watching an interview of Jordan Peterson, that really famous media personality and clinical psychologist. And he was being asked this really kind of poignant and, and relevant question. How do I find the love of my life? In response to which he basically said, well, look, you don't want to put the horse before the carts. And so the question you should be asking yourself is, how do I become the person that people actually want to be with? And so in the case of young men, he went on to expound, right? And so, for example, maybe you should focus on being clean, like clean your room, for example. Maybe on top of that, you want to focus on being healthy, generous, honest, and productive. And then maybe on top of that, you want to become a person who is willing to delay gratification, who is willing to delay the fulfillment of his own needs in favor of the other who's willing to, to sacrifice and to suffer and endure for the sake of your beloved. 
And then funny enough, he went on to say that maybe after having done that mental inventory in terms of different ways that you're called to grow to become a more attractive partner, if you will, you realize actually there's a horrible abyss between who you are and your proposed ideal. But then he went on to say basically that the point still remains that if you're willing to put in the hard work and the effort to become the sort of person that people need and the sort of person that people want, don't be surprised if people line up to actually play with you in the sandbox. Now obviously with these different examples, we've been focusing a lot on men, but the same principles obviously apply equally to women because marriage obviously is meant to be a reciprocal thing. And so therefore, I just want to make it clear that when it comes to the vocation of marriage, it's equally true for women that they're called to make a gift of themselves, to focus on approaching that vocation in terms of giving of oneself as opposed to taking. And on top of that, and perhaps more importantly, it equally applies to women this principle that whenever meant to find our ultimate sense of grounding and purpose and meaning in other people, but instead we're always meant to find these things in the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And you see, the whole point is that once you learn to thereby bring yourself back into right relationship with God, everything changes. It changes the way you love. It changes the way that you approach the sacrament of marriage. And so, for example, perhaps you stop heaping unreasonable expectations on people like your spouse, your kids, to fill that void in your heart, which Christ alone should fill, which then allows you to love them in the way Christ always called you to love them not selfishly, but truly making a sincere gift of yourself to the other as other. Mindful again that the sacrament of marriage is meant to be emblematic of the spousal love between Christ and his church. And may God bless you all.